for the latest business news and interviews. This is Business Now, AsiaPacific.com. Welcome to BNAP Today. I'm Mike Ryan. Today we're joined by Kirk Clyatt back in Las Vegas from his Philadelphia experiment. We're also joined by Andrew Ridgey, Director of New York City Hospitality Alliance, and by Dr. Sanjeev Sablok, former Senior Manager of Economic Strategy at the Victorian Department of Treasury and Finance. the Asia-Pacific region. Business Now, AsiaPacific.com. Andrew Ridgie is the Executive Director of the New York Hospitality Alliance. That's an association representing restaurants and nightlife venues throughout the five boroughs of New York. Andrew, welcome from the Big Apple. Ah, Thank you for having me. The Big Apple is a bit soft at the moment. It needs to uh, get back to being the greatest city in the world, doesn't it? Yeah, well, there's a worm in it right now, but uh, we will definitely come back. It may take a little bit of time, but, you know, we get the uh, greatest people from around the world, love to come to New York City, and uh, we will rebound. But, uh, you know, it's a tough time here, just like it is for so many people around the world. You've got a really interesting background. Tell us about that and how you came to this role with the uh, NYC Alliance. Yeah, well, going back to my great-grandparents, we had bakeries and cafes. whole family grew up working there, always worked in the restaurant industry in different capacities within the industry, went to culinary school, was probably going to open up my own restaurant, but I also like politics, so food, restaurants, politics, and who knew that there was a place where these sectors met in the association world. So uh, early 2000s, started working with the State Restaurant Association here in New York and learned how I could, you know, be a advocate and a supporter and a consultant and keep myself in the city's restaurant and nightlife industry. And then fast forward a bunch of years, I was the founding executive director of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. We're an association that represents restaurants, bars and nightclubs in New York City. I mean, we got a big industry here. Pre-pandemic, there was more than 25,000 eating and drinking establishments employing more than 300,000 people. And, you know, restaurants, food, drink, nightlife, the city that never sleeps, the restaurant capital of the world. We are intricate not only to the economics of the city, but also the social fabric. But it was getting so tough to operate one of these small businesses successfully. The regulations, the price of real estate, the competition – All these factors made us believe that we needed our own citywide association to represent our industry in the halls of government, to provide us education, training, services, do different types of events, conferences for our industry so we could really survive and hopefully thrive. And we were fighting hard and then all of a sudden, boom, COVID hit. And the world changed, and we've been working around the clock fighting for our survival ever since. Hospitality, businesses, and employment have been devastated by these lockdowns. Tell us how your constituents have been affected, and do you think, hopefully, the worst is over? Well, you know, the last part of your question is, who knows? There's so much uncertainty. New York City restaurants just started opening up indoors at a 25% occupancy on September 30th. And then this past week, three different neighborhoods in the city had to get shut down again because we started seeing infection rates increase. 
Hopefully they can contain that. Uh, we can eliminate that and get those neighborhoods back open again without it impacting other neighborhoods. So we'll see. It's a long road. It's going to be uncertain. That's why we need to keep fighting for the future of our industry. Um, Pre-pandemic, as I said, there were more than 25,000 eating and drinking establishments. Well, we don't know how many thousands have permanently closed yet. We do know that currently about 150,000 New Yorkers that used to work in food and drink places before the pandemic are still out of work. So it is a pretty dire situation. I mean, I speak with restaurant owners and these aren't big corporations. You know, these are family owned businesses. Even the bigger restaurant groups are still small businesses in the grand scheme of things. And people are exhausting their personal savings. And, you know, it's just it's dire. There is not much positivity out there and they're doing everything they can to hang on. But they're fighters. I mean, you don't get into this industry if you're not tough. There's something in our DNA that makes us tough. We're used to working nights, weekends, holidays, dealing with the public in a very labor-intensive industry. So, you know, while there's tons of doom and gloom, at the end of the day, the industry will survive. My question and what I'm fighting for is to try to mitigate the damage. How can we reduce the number of businesses that permanently shutter? How do we save as many jobs as possible? And how do we rebuild a stronger, more resilient New York City hospitality industry. There's a quote I always reference from Churchill, which was, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And while there's going to be doom and gloom, we need to make sure that we also use this as an opportunity to enact policies that are going to support small business owners, that's going to support jobs and create a stronger, more resilient city with a great restaurant scene and a great nightlife scene. 25% um, for a restaurant is... It's not even break even for most restaurants. Uh, then you have the uncertainty. Will I be open next week? Will there be a lockdown? Include those two challenges. Uh, what other challenge or challenges also do you have for the industry and for the city? I mean, I think the uh, first of all, the occupant, you know, 25%, that's a major problem because you're not going to be able to survive. And then to have this uncertainty with the, uh, with the lockdowns, that also, you can't, you can't go into a business and not plan. And if you can't plan, well, what do you do? Yeah, well, I mean, on the 25%, the rest of New York State has been open since June at a 50% indoor occupancy. And thankfully, we've seen the infection rates continue to go down until recently, just in a couple of these select neighborhoods where we've seen the cases rise. Um, You're right, 25% is not enough. We are hoping to get to at least 50% by November 1st. We'll see how these neighborhoods where there is an increase in cases impact that. But listen, even at 50%, that's not going to save restaurants. Pre-pandemic, when restaurants in the city of New York had 100% indoor occupancy, it was difficult enough to survive. Mm. So what we really need is to safely get back to 100% indoor occupancy as soon as possible. We know that's not going to happen for some time. So we really need all levels of government to provide us the support necessary to give us a fighting chance. You know, restaurants didn't shut down because someone didn't like our burger or our bowl of pasta or our service wasn't up to par. We were mandated by government to shut down. Now we need that same exact government to provide us the support. So as we start to reopen, we stand a fighting chance. They can't shut us down and then just leave us out there hanging to fail. 
Interesting, the uh, the law and order situation. Um, I mean, the, the the beauty of New York restaurant restaurants take away the uh, around um, Times Square and stuff, but out uh, further out or even a couple of blocks out, you've got these neighbourhood restaurants that just, it's the conduit for that neighbourhood. They're just simply amazing. And it's amazing that they know just about everybody's name in that neighbourhood. But you throw in the law and order situation. How do you think that will affect restaurants? And how is that affecting, say, the uh, that particular neighbourhood and then the city? Yeah, well, you know, restaurants truly are the fabric of our communities, Mm. you know. I remember in March and April, in the midst of the pandemic, I was riding my bike through different neighborhoods to check out what was going on. And at nighttime, particularly, these areas got dark. All the stores were shuttered, no lights on, no people out, or at least not everyday people out there shopping, eating, drinking, going home, leaving work. You know, you had homeless people, mentally ill, drugs. So there are a lot of reasons to be concerned. And what I noticed was when you didn't have the restaurants open, when you didn't have the bars open that brought light to the street, that took the responsibility of cleaning those sidewalks, of bringing people into that neighborhood, you saw how quickly neighborhoods could be, for lack of a better term, downgraded and create more concern and perpetuate kind of an economic slide. And as these restaurants and bars started opening for outdoor dining, now indoor dining, it's brought back an energy and a vitality that is so important. You don't really realize how important these businesses are Mm. for so many reasons until they're gone. You know, we also employ people from all walks of life. There's many people that work in restaurants and bars that maybe wouldn't have an opportunity to get into the workforce elsewhere, but they come and they work in our businesses. So I think we need to support our industry, not only because it's this industry sector, but because it supports our communities. We're the backbone of our communities. When we started getting shut down, one of the things that amazed me and it kind of gives me chills thinking about it was these are restaurant owners in the midst of their own crisis and they're calling me and saying you know how can i support the community we have all these incredible frontline workers how can we donate food to them help the frontline workers you know help feed people that got laid off for them jobs and need food how can we support them and without these businesses we wouldn't have the same type of supports in our communities that are needed to keep our communities moving forward. So, again, we're so important to the economic fabric, but also the social fabric. And New York City will not recover economically or socially unless the city's restaurant and nightlife is truly at the core of that recovery. If you were the, uh, the governor or uh, mayor uh, and probably do a better job combined, by the way, um, what would you do to bring life back into the city and to the restaurant businesses? Well, the outdoor dining program definitely helped. It brought people back out. It got these businesses back open, got some people employed, brought an energy, a vitality back to the streets, which also helped other businesses in the neighborhood. But, you know, as it gets cool, not as many people are going to want to sit outside and eat, especially as it gets cold. The biggest challenge that these small businesses are going to face, and we need support from city, state, and federal government, is to deal with the commercial rent crisis. Our organization just conducted a study, and we've been doing it monthly. The most recent one found that 87% of the restaurants and bars we surveyed had been unable to pay their rent that month. 
and only one out of 10 had renegotiated their leases. So we need a way to forgive rent, not provide more loans and more debt, but forgive rent in a responsible way to help these businesses stand a fighting chance because rent is our largest fixed cost. We're paying it if we're open, we're paying it if we're closed, or we're paying it if we are operating at a limited capacity. And we have to also understand that there are landlords who have their own obligations. They may have a mortgage. They have to pay property taxes, which fund our city's essential service, police, fire, sanitation, you name it. So the city and state need to get together and also work with the federal government to deal with the rent crisis. Otherwise, we are going to see more small businesses shutter because they can't pay back rent, which means more people won't get back to work. And then you're going to have more vacant storefronts, which reduce the property taxes our city collects, which creates blight in our communities and really perpetuates all types of activities and a downward spiral which we do not need. We need the opposite. So we need to figure out a way to responsibly forgive rent above all. And then there's dozens of other issues related to just cutting red tape, chopping through bureaucracy and providing support to business owners so they feel like their government is supporting their success, not putting up hurdles and making it more difficult for them to succeed. November 3, just around the corner. Um, Do you think, though, federally this will have much of a difference to what's happening at the moment? You know, we will certainly see. Right now, there are two bills that passed the House of Representatives are being dealt with in the Senate. And it seems like President Trump wasn't pushing for them, but is now pushing them. But there's so much confusion about just what's happening as far as our next stimulus package goes. The two bills are the Restaurants Act and the Save Our Stages Act, which would help support the restaurant and nightlife industry by providing grants to them to help them pay rent, utilities, vendor expenses, payroll. And we desperately need to pass this bill before the election because these businesses cannot wait. And what's so important about it, not just locally, but at a federal level, is the restaurant industry is part of an ecosystem. You know, I always say it's not just about the physical restaurant here in Manhattan, for example, but, you know, we're purchasing our produce from farmers upstate. We're purchasing perhaps our proteins, our beef from, you know, cattle ranchers in the Midwest. Or we're buying our, you know, whiskey or bourbons and other drinks from other places in New York State, but throughout the country. So we are part of this economic ecosystem that does really rely on a vibrant New York City restaurant and nightlife industry to survive. So we need the federal government before the election to do whatever they can do. And then whatever the outcome is in November, we are going to need that administration and that Congress and that Senate to continue to support our industry. Otherwise, there's going to be a lot of loss. Scary days ahead, but hopefully, uh, I mean, the vaccine's taking um, a little longer than we hoped. So we'll keep our fingers crossed because I think that's that's about the only way we'll ever get back to. And I can't stand this COVID normal you know, phrase we hear, COVID normal, COVID normal. We just want things to be normal. And then it's tough enough to stay in business. But uh, you, you are in still the greatest city in the world. Um, just a, a stunning city. My favorite part, by the way, is the Upper West Side. Uh, I, I can dream and wish that I could be there. 
I am talking to you from the Upper West Side right now, and I will tell you, whenever you come and visit, please stop by. We still have so many incredible restaurants. I mean, you could just walk up Amsterdam Avenue, and there's one restaurant after another. They're doing some great things with the outdoor dining, and it's a tough situation. But like I said before, our industry is tough. We're going to power through this. So uh, we'd love to welcome you on the Upper West Side to say hello. And you've got a lovely park nearby. It's uh, fairly sizable, great for a run or a bike ride or just a walk. And then when when you're finished, you go back, have a shower, go out for dinner. Man, oh man, that's living, isn't it? Oh, indeed. Indeed it is. Andrew Ridgey, Executive Director of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Thank you very much. Thank you. Before settling in Australia, Sanjeev Sublock held senior roles in the Indian Administrative Service, including as Deputy Commissioner of a State District, Professor of Management at a National Academy of Administration and Public Policy, and a Commissioner to a State Government in Northeastern India. Sanjeev was a National Science Talent Scholar and holds a Bachelor of Science, two Masters in Economics, a Postgraduate Diploma in Business and a Doctorate in Economics from the University of Southern California. Since March 2001, Sanjeev held roles in the Victorian Government and more recently as an economist in the Department of Treasury and Finance. Sanjeev resigned from his Treasury role on the 10th of September, and that was to protest the outrageous violations of liberty and good policy by the Daniel Andrews government. Sanjeev, nice to catch up with you once again. Uh, Thank you, Mike, for having me back. Uh, It was a pleasure meeting you the first time, so... uh And a lot's happened. Uh, There's been little criticism of our governments, either state or federal, during the pandemic. Should there have been more debate about policy decisions? Absolutely, you're spot on. I think the whole thing uh, seems to have been, as I've written in a recent article, which I presented at the Samuel Griffith Society uh, on the 8th of October, we've had a, we have a significant collapse of all the institutions in Australia. And that includes the media, but not just the media, but the public service, uh, the, uh, the courts themselves, possibly. And the government as a whole have, uh, you know, failed. And that's why I call my book that I've just put out and it's available now on Kindle, The Great uh, Hysteria, The Great Hysteria and the Broken State. So we've had a broken state. The institutions have failed. People aren't asking questions. The media is not asking questions. I've actually pinged the media. And, and in fact, there are good people in the media who have asked a number of questions. Uh, but it's as a whole, the media is not bothered to actually dig into the actual laws and the pandemic plans and the documents that were available publicly. And they never bothered to check whether these measures were either scientifically approved, legally approved, ethically approved, or in any way uh, published the arguments published, which is a requirement under the laws, that none of this should be kept secret, uh, the justifications for all these measures. So we've had a very significant collapse. And what I've told the Samuel Griffith Society is that, look, even the Constitution, uh, you know, uh, where Bill of Rights protects uh, the citizens, like in the USA, we've seen failures there. Finally, the courts have woken up and said this whole thing is uh, unconstitutional. But we've got a Magna Carta and common law based society here in Australia. 
and we've had we only depend upon institutions and that includes uh, obviously the the media as you you know uh, one of the key institutions if media isn't leading debate and experts yes. then don't speak up what can be done uh, well this is where i think the media's media's picked sides you know uh, media's taken sides from the very beginning uh, there are experts, and I think, um, uh, you know, people like Sunetra Gupta, people like, uh, uh, you know, Anders Tegnell, who is one of the most experienced infectious disease specialists in the entire world, uh, Johan Giseke, uh, Martin uh, Kuldorf, uh, uh, jo- John Ioannidis, uh, and the list is pretty much endless of these extraordinarily competent experts who have been raising alarm about this for the last six months. I haven't seen the media pick it up. I've actually, we've unfortunately been forced to look around elsewhere uh, on various blogs and other places for the experts' opinions. So the experts have spoken out. Um, the, uh, the issue has been the media's picked sides and they've actually decided that we'll only use the experts that the government approves. And that's been the big issue here for the mm. media. Mm. Professor Martin Kuldorf of, the, uh, of Harvard Medical School talked of the costs of suppressing the virus, the need for evidence-based approaches to public health. Tell me this, is anyone in any level of government in Australia acknowledging mm. this? I, I, I'm sure there are a lot of people within the government, and I, I speak from personal knowledge that a lot of economists within my team uh, were extraordinarily concerned about these policies. Now, the problem is that we are mid-level economists. Uh, you know, I was VPS 6, which is a senior level, but not the executive. And the executives ultimately drive the advice to the to the ministers. So I, 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 I believe the answer is, yes, there's a lot of concern. In fact, I spoke to somebody from the department yesterday uh, uh, on a different matter, not the economist. And he, the person, was also very deeply concerned about this whole thing. So there's a lot of people from the legal fraternity, economic fraternity within the government who are seeing this thing basically completely inconsistent with our laws and principles and everything. And and yet the, the idea that, uh, you know, they're not speaking up or maybe not advising the government adequately is the concern, which I'm, a, I'm, I'm actually going to write about this uh, uh, very shortly uh, in an open letter to my own departmental secretary asking him, how could he possibly allow this to happen? So, yes, this, this information is widely known. It's not only widely known, Mike, what I've actually explained in, a, in that Samuel Griffith Society article is that this is actually a requirement of our own pandemic plan in Victoria. The 10th March pandemic plan of Victoria, which I discovered later, probably a, a bit later after talking to you last time, actually explicitly states that the focus must be on the, on the base of evidence. And we can see that in the COVID case that is actually updated for COVID-19. In the case of COVID, the plan actually says we will focus on the on the high risk, uh, high risk age groups, which is basically the elderly. And it actually has it all explicitly worked out. It doesn't talk about lockdowns, universal lockdowns. It doesn't talk about curfews. It doesn't about talk about waiting indefinitely for a, vex, for a vaccine and so on. So basically, our plans were disbanded and discarded. So, look, uh, it's very challenging here situation, Mike. I, I believe it's a broken state. The state has failed. Mm. Professor Kaldorf also said, uh, Sanjeev, among my colleagues who I spoke with who are infectious disease epidemiologists, the majority are in favour of an age-targeted strategy. A minority are in favour of lockdowns and contact tracing. So, Sanjeev, how do we rush headlong into lockdowns and commit 
basically economic suicide on the basis of expert advice. Who were our experts? Yes, I think this is a this is a very deep question, and and I think it'll be it'll be the the focus of future royal commissions that will have to be established. In my book, I've actually got a complete chapter in which I drill down into the possible pathway, which starts from Neil Ferguson's model and the panic and hysteria generated from it. And there are a lot of, and I've argued that there are two types of epidemiologists in this world. The first of them are actually medical doctors. They've been trained in in at great depth in the medical sciences. They're actual doctors. They they practice as doctors. And therefore, they understand the Hippocratic Oath and that they must not do any harm. And then there are some other good people who are not necessarily doctors like Sunetra Gupta, but who are very good from their insides. And then there are these mathematical people who are epidemiologists as well, who only are trained in models. For them, people are just numbers. They do not have any ethical understanding. They don't understand the limitations of the Universal Declaration of Bioethics in the United Nations. They don't understand the Nuremberg Code. They don't understand anything to do with ethics. They are the most unethical people you can imagine. And that's why I've called for a reset of the epidemiological discipline for ensuring that epidemiologists must be trained in ethics. And so what we're seeing is the immoral, uh, the immoral people who created the hysteria, people like Neil Ferguson, the people who are uh, then continuously failed. Their models failed within, within 10 days. Within 15 days, their models had completely failed. You know, they were predicting 90,000 deaths in Sweden by, and I think about 60,000 by mid-April. They saw 3,000 deaths in Sweden by mid-April without lockdowns. Neil Ferguson did not apologize. The man has got no moral principles. Mm. These are the kind of principles, uh, people, however, uh, Mike, that the government and the media have listened a lot to. And I think we, 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 we could have easily sorted this rubbish kind of, you know, experts, so-called experts, mm. from the genuine experts. And by the way, these experts that you refer to, they are actually, they've just issued the Great Barrington Declaration, which is, you know, thousands of, uh, you know, genuine doctors and experts saying that this is really wrong, what you're doing. So we've got, uh, within Victoria, we've got a COVID network, uh, uh, over 500 doctors saying this is not the way medical science is practiced. So we've actually seen a lot of experts and maybe, you know, the vast majority, as you rightly say, but those who have medical training and who mm. understand that they must not cause harm. Because these lockdowns are causing an inordinate amount of harm. I think in, they're, they're talking about one million people in Victoria. The headlines today, one million have now sought and, and, and obtained medical uh, mental health in the last six months. Mm. Mental health, one million out of six million people have sought uh, you know, treatment. Now, look at the kind of chaos and, and, and destruction being caused, not just economic, which you referred to. But this is an, this is an ethical issue. This is basically, in my view, I call it, in my book, Public Health Terrorism, I, and, there, and there are good reasons for that. But I'm also at drafting a complaint to the uh, International Criminal Court uh, because I, I've checked the Article 7 of the uh, Roman statute on, uh, you know, whatever, the, the crimes against humanity. This is perfectly fits the description of crimes against humanity, which are also about mass scale mental health issues. So I believe that these people, the institutions have failed to protect us from from these crimes against humanity by these experts who are mathematicians for whom people are mere numbers. And they, they do not have any ethical sense, whereas people like Kaldoff, as you rightly said, and by the way, Martin Kaldoff has been supporting my work and my articles I've been publishing for six months on Times of India. He's been actively supporting with me. He's in constant touch with me. OK, mm. so we've got really good people uh, that I've been working with that they've been talking about these issues. And look, sadly, the governments have uh, failed. The media has failed. Uh, and what can be done about this, Mike? This is a big challenge. That's for for the last one month since resigning. I've actually taken it upon myself to do something about it. And I've set up a Liberate Victoria website. Where it's got a lot of information. LiberateVictoria.org, 
a lot of information I'm pouring out there. I put a strategy out there. I'm working on different fronts in, in, in order to make sure that this can be dealt with because I can't take this lying down, uh, unfortunately, mm. Mike. So how, how, but how do we fix things in, say, in, in Victoria, for example, if the same people are in charge? Oh, well, well the, the people personally, I have nothing against them. I actually believe they're good people. I have, uh, you know, it's very easy for good people to get misled and get hysterical. So what's happened is I call the great hysteria in my book. This is the biggest hysteria in the history of mankind on earth. Okay, There's nothing on this scale ever on a global level, except Sweden, of course. Now, we, we, what we're seeing here is once, once people get, once, that, once they're triggered, you know, once people get triggered, including mm. all these premiers like Daniel Andrews or, you know, secretaries of departments, mm. once they get mentally triggered, they shut down, okay, they freeze. It's a freeze, freeze, you know, the fear response leads to fleeing the, the situation, shutting down the mind and not thinking anymore. Mm. It's mm. our natural response, evolutionary response. They're all suffering very hyper-activated limbic system. They're behaving like little frightened uh, you know, whatever, rats or whatever you can call it. Children, little children. Animals. They're, they're behaving like little, yeah, like children who mm. have been frightened. They're not behaving like men or like women. They're not behaving like adults who can actually apply their frontal lobe and start thinking rationally, which is what I argue in my book. The first thing that when the government was required to think critically, it actually just blanked out. Look, tell us uh, if somebody wants to find out more about your book, um, how do we do that? And where do oh, we well, go to uh, find out more? It's on Kindle right now. It was uh, it was a print edition was available last week. Now it's on Kindle, and so I, I drafted this book very uh, you know very rapidly in just ten days. Uh, it's a short, crisp, but very uh, you know comprehensive book that covers the moral issues, the economic issues, mm. the the scientific issues, the legal issues. Mm. So as a as a complete package. But then on top of that, you should read my Samuel Griffith article, which is I said linked on my. Uh, website as well, uh, the liberatevictoria.org, where I believe I've added some more information based on further research, which is not in the book. So this is a constant exercise of learning, uh, Mike. I'm getting so much information, a flood of information from people who are providing me lots of useful leads, mm. which I'm consolidating inside this you know, brain and trying to shove it out of there as a consolidated package. Mm. So I'm working on three different things at the moment. I've got a complete liberate uh, Victoria strategy that's on the website, and I'm working on different parts of the strategy, um, um, Mike, to make sure that uh, we don't take this lying down, because if, it do, if we do that, this is not going away. And we need to, first of all, de-escalate the hysteria. So I'm writing a two-page pamphlet, which I hope can be, you know, widely circulated mm. in the community, to so people start, you know, stop thinking of this. Because as I said, 13 people out of 100,000 so far have died in the entire world, one out of 7,594. 13 out of 100,000. So I said, okay, look at the MCG. Yeah, full house MCG has got 100,000 people. 13 of them go missing. Of them, most of them are above the age of 84. Mm-hmm. At the same time, while 13 went missing for COVID-19 in the world, at the same time, around, around eight of them went missing for the flu because flu takes 650,000 deaths, uh, you know, lives per year. Mm-hmm. So when are we looking at this whole thing, we are, we're starting to see people getting hysterical about something that's a, such a small exercise in the, in the big scheme of things. In Sweden, about six, less than 6,000 people have died, and then annually they have 9, 
90,000 people dying on a normal basis. In fact, the data can't show us the difference this year's deaths versus the last five years' death. There is no statistical difference. This has been one of the most minor, relatively minor pandemics. It is definitely not in the range of Spanish flu. It might have a little bit of a minor uh, ripple, like a second wave of some sort, a minor one, but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere close to Spanish flu. So first of all, I think we need to uh, make the people unhysterical, stop Mm. them from being crazy kind of thing, you know, getting uh, frightened. And that's one of the first jobs I'm trying to do. Mm. Once that's done, then they need to start getting back to their original risk-based approaches, which is, by the way, embedded. It's part of the DNA of Victorian administration and governors. Mm. And also, by the way, across Australia. We have forgotten that all of a sudden. It seems to have gone overboard. We just went hysterical. That's the only word that applies in this case, unfortunately. Mm. Sanjeev, we need more noise from people like yourself. Uh, Brilliant chatting. Sanjeev, thank you very much. Uh, Pleasure, Mike. Thank you very much. This is Business Now, AsiaPacific.com. Yes, look. No, no, he's not homeless. No, no, he's not homeless. No, that, sorry, the, uh, we had the producer on the line. She said the, the Homeless Society of Philadelphia were... Yeah. Uh, Kirk Clyde, uh, speaking of not homeless, back yeah. in his hometown, Las Vegas, yes. from uh, walking the streets of Philly. Kirk, wel- was- welcome. It's great to be back, great to be back home. It's great to visit the East. It just makes you appreciate that the uh, West is best. But I will say there's some things that folks do better in Philadelphia. As a societal norm, more people wear masks. Take a look at a couple of these shots here. This I Mm. took in Center City. Remember, if you ever go to Philadelphia, there is no downtown. It's Center City in Philadelphia. And what they've done is they've moved all the restaurants out into the streets. Now, last weekend, thankfully, a beautiful autumn evening. But when the rains move in and the cold temperatures, how are these restaurants going to survive? I don't know. But at least it was beautiful last Saturday night. Dining in the street, you know, some of the sidewalks are a little crooked. So I don't know if I'd want those tables. But I got to hand it to the people, the citizens of Philadelphia, and to the restaurateurs, that whole community, for getting together, working with the city to close down some of the streets, like 13th Street, which is in the Gaborhood. There you see it's Edie Windsor Way as well, and also some of the other streets in Center City to allow people to get out at least as far as uh, dining outside. So very interesting place to be. It's a little different dynamic uh, here in Las Vegas. And as a hope for the city, maybe not so much for me on the flight, but the flight coming back, it was a nonstop from uh, Philadelphia to here to Las Vegas. It was completely full. So there are fewer flights, but at least American Airlines, they're not doing what Southwest is which actually is the number one carrier here in Las Vegas. Americans filling them up, Southwest at least, is uh, keeping that middle aisle clear mm. at least for a little longer. be interesting to see if they can do that going into the uh, Thanksgiving and into the Christmas holidays. Now, not long, not long before the big D-Day, which the, actually the D-Day may go on for a few days. It might go yes. on for a few weeks, but the yes. start of the D-Day... The Donald Day. Tell us uh, about the latest polls. Is the Donald doing well or is the Donald not? I saw one and I can't remember if the top of my head was real clear politics or it may have been another service. But they said the odds of winning Donald winning the popular vote were one percent, one percent. And I kind of agree that's right. But he's got a much larger chance, of course, of winning the Electoral College, because in America, as you know, it's not one man, one vote. And the Republicans are scrambling like crazy people Two senators 
that were diagnosed with COVID are there in person. Senator Lee from Utah, Senator Tillis from North Carolina. I wouldn't get close to either one of them in this confirmation hearing for Amy Barrett. And, you know, it's a little alarming. Unlike Sean Hannity, who actually has a granny clause in his Fox contract that he's not allowed to be seen on air with his glasses. Come on, man up, Sean. Really? Oh, my gosh. I can take it. And Maisie Hirano, who is the uh, senator from Hawaii, she uh, asked a very interesting question to Coney Barrett. She says, you use the term sexual preference to describe those in the LGBTQ community. And let me make clear, sexual preference is an offensive and outdated term. Senator Hirano uh, adds she doesn't think ABC's use of the phrase was an accident. So we have got a real problem as a member of the LGBT community. I mean, the basic rights that we've just gotten, for instance, for equality, marriage rights and assorted other rights, property rights, survivorship rights, Social Security benefits, all that could go away. But the main thing that Trump is worried about is getting her on the court in the next three weeks to rule on any election related matters. And of course, if she gets on the court, we're going to be talking about a 6-3 strong conservative majority. But, you know, here's something interesting. I think it was 1869 when Congress established the court at nine members. Now, interesting sidebar on this. The reason there were nine members is because at that time, there are nine judicial circuits. So there was one member of the Supreme Court, basically, for each judicial circuit. You know how many there are now? How many? There are 13 judicial circuits in the United States. Mm. So certainly there's no constitutional violation by the Republicans trying to ram through the Supreme Court nominee. Conversely, there would certainly be no constitutional violations for the Democrats to say, hey, we now have 13 judicial circuits, so let's just add four more justices. And if Congress approves, and of course you uh, don't have the 60-vote threshold, the filibuster threshold anymore in the Congress, if you eliminated that from the Senate for all legislation, it would just take a vote of Congress, a vote of the Senate, the President, President Biden, to say, hey, Let's have 13 justices. Mm. So that would be fascinating because what that would do, if you added four to the mix, four plus three equals seven. So it would be a seven to six liberal majority in 2021. So we shall see what happens. But, of course, that's not going to happen unless Joe Biden becomes president and Donald Trump pulling out all the stops. Early voting has begun here in the United States and in Georgia. There were some reports of people waiting 12 hours in line. We've seen that very long lines in Virginia, too. The day we record this is on Tuesday. Tuesday, I think it's October the 13th. They all come together all the days. But on this day, the last day of voter registration, somehow accidentally a cable got cut, which shut down all the voter registration on the last day of registration in the state of Virginia. So I wouldn't put it past the Republicans to do anything, lawful or not, to try to win this election. And that's why it is so key that uh, they get their Supreme Court justice on there. Lindsey Graham, oh my gosh, she is the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee from South Carolina. His challenger, Jamie Harrison, has raised in South Carolina, not that big a state, more people than here in Nevada. Give you an idea, here in Nevada, we have four congressional districts. They have seven 
in South Carolina. But Graham's opponent in the last quarter raised well over $50 million, $50 million. Now, I'm not watching TV in South Carolina, but if you do, I bet you you don't ever see anything but political ads. And the amount of money being spent, oh, my, I yearn for the days of Obama-Biden. I still have my sign. That I'm looks great. Uh, no, that's great. And, and, and I'm impressed because there's no spelling mistakes. Now, by the way, you, you mentioned before about the cable. Um, my producer was telling me, hang on, yep, my producer was telling me that Kamala Harris was seen gardening around there with his great pair of scissors. So no, I, I'm no, not saying would, anything. She you would s- want but you to said register. you said the Republicans. You sure that wasn't Mike Pence? You sure that wasn't Mike Pence? There, he's a guard. Maybe it was mommy, his wife, Karen. Now after mommy. some now, now after some bitties. Now Joe Biden, uh, uh, Donald's been out rallying. You know, you know vote, mm-hmm. vote, vote, vote for me, uh, Joe Biden. Where is he? Well, I think you need to find, Mike, and it's pretty easy to find online. Donald Trump in Sanford, Florida last night, dancing to the village people from 1979. And what's, what's wrong record. with the village people? YMCA. <laughs> no, great. But YMCA. Is he trying to tell us something? That was one of the original gay anthems, and you got Donald Trump dancing to it. Hey, let's look at some political mail, shall we? Just a little couple of things. Where I, was right, going. Okay, I haven't okay. got this on my car yet. There's a Biden-Harris sticker. There's a Vote Joe Biden, a whole conglomeration of every slogan you can think of. And then also, and you know, it's amazing here, maybe different from a lot of countries, and different states are different too, but we elect judges in Nevada, and there's so many of them, it's hard to keep track. So here's the uh, Service Employees International Union. That's basically the public employees telling you who they support there, which is kind of interesting because you actually have to do some real work. Here is the official sample ballot. And this isn't enough. The sample ballot, let me just look at the pages here of it. It's pretty long. They actually had to send a supplement because there's so much stuff for the ballot questions. So, I mean, it is a project to put this together. And I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to use my sample ballot. And then also in Nevada, all voters, this is what Donald is so upset about, and yelling at our governor, Steve Sisolak, because all voters here in Nevada, I haven't even opened mine yet, get a sample ballot in the mail. He says, oh, corruption, corruption. But you have to sign it, and they have to match your signature on the outside of the envelope. And uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to take my sample ballot and fill it out and then go to early voting, which will be this Saturday. Early voting starts here in Nevada. And we'll talk next week about what that was like and how the line is. But what's fascinating is, oh, this is just fun for me to do. The greatest comeback in economic history has begun. The, the analogy that I go on this, you go to the casino, you lose $10,000 at the casino, and then you win 5000 back. Oh, the greatest gambling comeback of my life, Mike. I just won $5,000. No, wait a minute. Wait wait a minute. The you Donald. Just, you lost $10,000, so you're still down five. You didn't make five grand. You recovered it. And, of course, he's, you know, a radical left. Joe's on the radical left. And, you know, this, of course, news but Joe, but, 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 but Joe isn't on the radical God. left. It's the radical no. left that's behind Joe. I mean, we know. I mean, it's a fact. Wait. It's a fact. And, and you know, though, Kirk, you know that Kamala will be 
the president. She's going to be president whether no. it's one month or six months because Joe yeah, one day no. will get up and he will say, where am I? Hello, Joe. Joe, where yeah. are you? Hang on. Hang on. Let me just check in my basement. I'll be back in a second. Hang on. In my basement. No, he's not in the basement. He just does not believe in having super spreader events and actually cares about mm. the people that vote for him. Unlike, unlike Donald. Oh, let's see another. Joe Biden would take our country into a U-turn with job-killing yes. regulations, Thank you. higher taxes, yes. and lower growth policies. Yes. Oh, look at this. 10 million, 10.6 million jobs have been added since May. Yes. Didn't you lose 20? So no. that means you're still 10% down, Donald. Oh, my God. Now, talking about, oh my God. T- talking about the Joe and talking about I the Donald. I raise taxes on but working families, talking about the but Joe we will make the super wealthy and the Donald. pay their fair share. Okay, good. There you go. The, yeah. when, will, when will we see the Joe and the Donald coming together again for a debate? Will the third <laughs> one happen? You know, before we started these reports for months and months with my good friend, uh, Tony Mack, on 6PR, I'm on every Saturday night in Perth time, which is China time, too. Perth and China time, exactly China. the same. They, ne- they never switch. So 1030 every Saturday night, I'm on live with Tony Mack on 6PR. So for months, I've been talking about how I didn't even think the debates would happen. There would be something that would come up way even before the coronavirus started. So they got that one whack job bait in there. But will there be another one? I wouldn't bet the mortgage money on it. Of Mm. course, the one for this week has been officially canceled. The one for next week, who knows? Who knows? knows? As you know, we get a month's worth of news every day. Mm. So unfortunately, by the time you're watching this, half a day's news will already be gone. So Mm. it's hard to say, but I would not be at all surprised if there are no more debates. And what was really, I think, foolish mistake of trump letting his pride go first was that who needs this debate more than joe biden it's donald trump who needed it because he is so far down Mm. in the polls and of course right now we're focusing on a state like pennsylvania and it is going to be such a interesting split there because you'll see the cities go so strongly for biden and trump will probably win some of the interior counties, but that was one of the three states that put Trump into the White House. So uh, both campaigns are focusing a lot of energy, a ton of energy right now on Pennsylvania, Michigan, where there's a surprisingly close race for Senate. Democrats better throw some money in there to Gary Peters, who's the incumbent Democrat to protect that seat. And then, of course, Wisconsin. But you've got contests now in Florida and Texas. If by some chance that uh, Biden, he does win Florida, it's neck and neck. Texas, those two states, it's all over. Mm. doesn't matter what happens with the other key states. North Carolina, another key one. And you've got the Democrat there, Cal Cunningham. Some minor sex scandal. He sent flirtatious emails or text. I think it was text to a woman who wasn't his wife. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, my God. It's shocking, isn't you gotta, it? Oh, what a shock. Grab your pearls. What a shock. <laughs> you got to remember. You know, I really didn't have a chance when I was reporting full time to get the full dynamic of who it is for a politician. Mm. Here, I've had a chance to do that, be more involved in the Nevada political scene, even a Nevada state delegate at the convention in 2016. It is amazing, the intensity. These people that run 
for office, even if it's a state representative or a state senator, it is basically a consuming job. It is basically that's why you don't have better people because people say, "Do I want to spend eighteen hours a day working on this?" So that is their life. The ego is so intense; it's not surprising at all. Gee, a few a few flirtatious emails, but wouldn't it be crazy mm. if those emails kept the Democrat from North Carolina, Cunningham, out of the Senate? and transferred the balance of power and kept it, rather, with the Republicans. So the butterfly effect in full swing here in the U.S., small things could have a huge difference uh, come three weeks from now or four weeks from now by the time we get the results out. And I can imagine the the nerves, the stress factor at the Clyde household. The ducks <laughs> must have lost the feathers, the rabbits, their ears, the dogs, their fur. How's how how are things there? Are they just well, I don't terrible? Have my, I don't have my wallet with me, or I would show you my Nevada medical marijuana card. It's legal for everyone, but mm. you get a better deal if you've got a medical card. Thankfully, Doctor Reefer. That's a real business. I kid you not. It's why Las Vegas is so wonderful. How many other cities in the world? Can you go to Dr. Reefer to hook you up with your medical marijuana card? So thanks to that, I'm staying reasonably calm <laughs> look i had i had many 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 questions and yes. of course we've kept to the script not uh <laughs> great chatting uh we'll talk next week of course um right. bring some more props along i mean I, and, and things that really show the democrats can spell i mean i'm impressed well, I've got my ballot here and we'll let you know how it goes <laughs> working families won't pay a penny more with Joe Biden. Thank you very much, Mike, from fabulous Las Vegas. Now, Kirk, while, while you go, I'm just going to see if I can find Joe. He's here somewhere. Now, Joe, Joe, where are you? Uh, bye, He's Kirk. Bye, bye, bye. Kirk, Joe, where are you? Bye. For the Asia-Pacific region, business now, asiapacific.com.